also pitches. William swings as a high drive going deep, deep. It is a home run, a tremendous home run. That brought in three runs and turned what looked to be a National League whip into an American League 7-5 to five win. Dan Musial is first up for the Nationals in their half of the 12th. Here comes Sullivan's first pitch. And there it goes. A home run over the right field screen. It's the fourth all-star homer in Musial's career. And by far the most important. The National League wins an uphill battle 6-5. to five. The National League now has won five of the last six of these midsummer spectacles. Musial's teammates gather at the plate to greet the hero. There are two out and two men on base. As pitcher Dick Raddatz, the Boston Monster, faces Johnny Callison. It's a story booker. Callison sends the first pitch soaring into the stands for a three-run homer. It's all over but the frenzy at home plate as his National League teammates pour out of the dugout to form a welcoming committee for Johnny Callison, the hero of the hour. Pete Richards checks the runner at second base, then fires and Will flashes a line single into right center field.
Johnson has had pitches clocked at as much as 102 miles per hour in Major League play. Now that good ball uh, obviously just getting away from him, but watch the reaction of John Krupp. Would you say his heart is palpitating a bit? When the second half resumes on Thursday. <laughs> Look at the next step. I don't blame John one bit on his right leg. <laughs> he failed out again at the breaking point. He wants no part of Randy Johnson. None. No, this kind of response. I don't think so. You knew that was tough. John had no chance. There he goes.
but took the home run away from Barry Bonds. And fans in Minnesota will tell you it's routine for this guy. And Bonds respects a lot. With Gagne on the mound, Blaylock is the man at the plate for the American League. Punk, a 2-0 changeup. He'll get it again.
From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good morning, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Coming in a little bit hot this week as the baseball universe is now on a momentary pause in celebration of the fans of baseball. As we head into the 2022 Midsummer Classic, and I want to welcome everyone in from my most loyal army of seamheads down to the newest newbie who may have just happened to stumble on us here at Backwards K-Bod. Thank you, thank you. Make yourself comfortable. Have a seat as we celebrate our love of baseball here through the incredible, indelible stories. I've covered around 160 years of baseball here from the Cincinnati Redlegs of the 1860s all the way up to the Savannah Bananas. And for the most part, I'm working on all things in between now. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms wherever you listen to your pods. Or you can find all of our shows on diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. And I got a whole vault of archives there. You can hear this or any other show. But I'm available everywhere, baby. If you're on Apple or Spotify, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. No Patreon, no crowd surfing. And... I will never give my audience a bill for the final uh, content of that month. No way. Not going to happen. Not in this shitty economy or any other shitty economy. The content here will always be free. All I need is for you to follow, subscribe, share, download, rate, and review. And we good, baby. I'll do the rest of the heavy lifting as I sit my ass in front of this blank canvas and prepare to do my thing. And... Speaking of blank canvas, how about that sit-down one-on-one with uh, world-renowned baseball artist Craig Kreiler in that last bonus show there? Now, that was fun. First of all, I'm a huge fan of his work. I, I, I believe he has carved himself out a really cool niche in the baseball universe here in 2022. His paintings are amazing. <laughs> and many of them just take you back to another time, to another place. And I enjoy Greg. We have a really good rapport together. And that dude is welcome back anytime just to sit in and talk. Whatever. I feel like he is a baseball story that needed to be added to my collection. And I'm glad I finally have it in my vault. Now, I know I've come at you aggressively this week. In the past seven days, I've given you the Crossley Field Show, which received a lot of attention in many of the stadium-centric groups and Facebook. I mean, the response in those rooms was amazing. I tip my cap to you. Thank you. And then I gave you Craig Kreiler and his incredible artwork on Saturday. And we are here about to perform an autopsy 
on the history of the All-Star Game. Now, before we dig into this week's topic, I don't usually talk about topical baseball stories here at Backwards K-Pod, but what a first half to a season, right? I mean, you got the Mets and the Yankees. They've made New York City the center of the baseball universe here in 2022. But, you know, they better beware because the Houston Astros, world champion Atlanta Braves, <laughs> and the always dangerous Dodgers, they're just slithering in the grass, ready to strike. And no one, no one has disappointed me quite the way uh, the White Sox, Angels, and Giants have. I expected so much more out of those teams. The, the White Sox, they need to dismiss Tony La Russa. And I hate saying that about any manager, let alone one with a Hall of Fame resume. But Tony has to go. At this point, and for nothing else, to get rid of the biggest distraction in that clubhouse. And the Angels, I just expected much better with the acquisition of Syndergaard and the emergence of Detmer and the rotation. A good lineup with uh, Trout, Otani, Walsh, Marsh, Rendon in it. Now, Rendon's hurt. He's done for the year. Very disappointing. And the Halos are going to have to ask themselves some very honest, tough questions in the offseason about their future. As for the Giants, they're, they're the hardest team to call sometimes. Now, I think last year, a lot of those players had their career year. But, you know, they're kind of heckling Giant, right? As evidenced by their even number championships of 2010, 12, and 14. They started out strong this year. They've had some bumps along the way. Uneven pitching in the rotation and injuries. And, you know, it's just a hard team to pin down. It could be as simple as a lot of those guys. They just happened to have their, you know, career seasons last year. It could be as simple as that. Now, on the flip side, how about them, those Mariners, huh? Those M's, winners of 14 straight games, headed into the break. And many people, myself included, I expect the M's to challenge Houston this year in the West. And, you know, that's going to be a tall order with the Astros currently holding a nine-game lead. But Seattle is now 51-42, and they hold that second AL wildcard spot. And hey, how about my beloved birds, right? The Baltimore Orioles. Under the steady hand of Mike Elias, they're beginning to see returns from burning it all to the ground and starting anew. The farm system, which was pretty much neglected since the early recovery senior days, it's been reborn like never seen before. And it only becomes more stout with the number one draft pick, Jackson Holiday. Over the weekend. And Aaron Judge. He's exactly what I pretty much projected him to be in the minors. And you can can ask the Don. Richie DeSalvio. He'll tell you. The Yankees better pay that man. Because uh, Juan Soto. Guy that just won the home run derby. He says that uh, 440 million isn't enough. And the Nationals look like they don't want to be burned twice. By these new age ball players. So. They're ready to pull out the biggest trade in baseball history. As I'm putting this together, I'm watching Sosa take the 2022 home run derby. I mean, he's just dropping bombs all over those right field Dodger Stadium bleacher seats. Now, something's going to happen here for sure. 
And Washington better protect themselves and they better protect their future. Uh, you know, look, the, the, the Nationals, they need to be rebuilding. You're either trying to win the World Series or you're trying to rebuild for the future. And right now, the Nationals are in no position to think they're going to be winning the World Series anytime soon. They need to be rebuilding. They need to restock, replenish their farm system. You know, they need to be doing those things instead of trying to figure out how to get more money together to pay Soto. And $440 million isn't, isn't worth it. And we're talking almost a half a billion dollars. These, these contracts, they're getting more ridiculous by the literal hour. I'm all for dudes making money and getting theirs. Anybody that knows me knows I will tell you that. And if someone offered me $440 million, I'd be a fool not to take it. But enough is enough. We're entering a half a billion dollar zone. And the owners just can't stop themselves. That's why I have such a low opinion and view about most of those guys. They have zero discipline, yet they demand discipline from the players. It's such a weird dichotomy. I hope my team never spends more than, I don't know, $25 million a year for a guy. I mean, even that sounds crazy to me. That much money? Man, just keep the farm strong, baby. I mean, I keep hearing it's a shitty economy, and a guy gets offered $440 million and he turns it down. Or for all you Freddie Freeman apologists out there, do we just wait for Doug Gottlieb to give us the latest tweet, and then we can blame it on the agent? You know, Soto never wanted to leave. The agent made him turn down $440 million. Is that what we're doing? I do find it interesting that Soto didn't like that Washington made that offer public. And folks, let me tell you, I love it. The Nats are being proactive here. No Freddie Freeman surprises. This is what we offered this cat. This is what he said. And now you, the fan base, you know the deets. I'm very fascinated by Judge and Soto's story. Personally, I'd like to see them stay with their teams, but these crazy contracts, it makes it like soap opera clickbait. And sometimes I hate myself for even caring what billionaires pay millionaires. One thing is for sure. I think about the work stoppage that almost prevented this awesome season. The players are making Skrilla hand over fist. And obviously, so are the owners. $440 million, are you kidding me? So, look, just a few observations by the snake. No one cares about my opinions. They only want to know my stories. And this week, in keeping with MLB All-Star Week, I present to you the history of the Midsummer Classic. Now, Truth be told, I'm more of a conservative baseball traditionalist. As you can tell by my rant just now about the salaries, I believe there should be some kind of threshold on the salaries. I cannot even believe that I'm saying that. I would have never said that 20 years ago. I guess, you know, it's just a part of my evolutionary process about salaries. And I have. I've changed so much in just the last 20 years. But I digress. I'm a traditionalist. I've resisted being that old guy who doesn't care about the All-Star game anymore. I've resisted it because I've always felt it was best for the fans and the game. I still feel that way, but my perspective has changed slightly with Universal DHs and Interleague Baseball. 
There's really no difference between the two leagues anymore. Now the teams play each other all the time. I was never in favor of interleague baseball. I always felt like playing the other league was supposed to be an honor earned on the field, whether it was on an individual basis, like playing yourself onto an all-star roster, or as a team goal, winning the pennant, advancing to the World Series. To me, that was what made baseball different and special over the NFL, NBA, NHL. You had to earn the right to play the other league. And I always thought interleague, bad idea. Never guess it. Again, I'm a conservative traditionalist. I think that the uh, MLB has placed themselves in a box with these interleague and universal DH rules, and they have diluted the All-Star game as well as the World Series. I think at some point, Major League Baseball needs to rip a page out of the Bud Seaman playbook and do a radical realignment based on geography and not leagues. Maybe then the All-Star game will have the significance that it used to. One thing is for sure, it's still the most competitive of all you know, the all-star, all-pro games in American sports. And it could be even better with the right minds behind it. But look, you know, that's another story for another pop. This week, we're here to examine the history of the Midsummer Classic, the MLB All-Star Game. And before we get started, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that technically, the first Major League Baseball All-Star Game was July 24th, 1911. And what has been called the Addie Joe's Benefit Game. It was a game between the Cleveland Naps and a collection of players from other teams around the league at League Park in Cleveland, Ohio. The game itself was a planned benefit game for the family of Addie Joe's, who was a dominant pitcher of his day. He died in April. The All-Stars were going to beat the Naps 5-3, and the game raised $12,914, which is the equivalent to about $400,000 in today's economy. So that was technically the first All-Star game, although it was an AL team versus the rest of the AL affair. That was July 24th, 1911. And believe it or not, folks, you can kind of thank the Great Depression for the advent of the All-Star game. When the market crashed and the economy crumbled in the early 30s, baseball struggled to fill their spaces' cathedrals. League attendance in 1930 was over 10 million people. In 1931, 9 million people showed up. And then that dropped to less than 7 in 1932. 1933, the season was on pace to draw even less than 7. So, During the summer of 1933, the city of Chicago was hosting the Century of Progress World's Fair, which was basically like the celebration of the city's centennial. And, you know, you're supposed to develop this, you know, national sense of optimism and empowerment during, you know, this crushing times of the Great Depression. And the mayor of Chicago... Uh, Mr. Edward J. Kelly. He wanted to have an athletic event to highlight the fair, and he would turn to the Tribune sports editor, Arch Ward, for his thoughts and opinion. And it was Arch Ward who thought of a matchup between the American League's best 
and the National League's best, as voted on by baseball fans throughout America. Now, to make this happen, Ward and the Tribune Company, they had to go out on a limb. They had to agree to underwrite any of the losses from the game. And the sports department would also be responsible for counting the votes. And just like that, this beautiful exhibition game was born. Legendary A's manager Connie Mack was chosen to manage the American League, while Giants icon John McGraw took the reins for the National League. And as the date of the schedule came uh, scheduled game came closer and closer. The hype of the of that event was getting louder and louder. And for once, the hype lived up to the event as 50,000 fans showed up to Comiskey Park to watch the American League win 4-2 behind the power of a two-run shot off the great Bambino's lumber, Babe Ruth. The game was originally slated to be a one-time deal. But after the success of the first contest, the league agreed in January of 1934 to do it again. Within months, the Polo Ground was chosen as the site of the 1934 All-Star Game. MLB had also set a precedent with an agreement that the members of the previous World Series team would have the honor of being the manager of their respective leagues in the upcoming game. So, in 1934, that meant Bill Terry of the New York Giants and Joe Cronin of the Washington Senators would be competing managers in the game. And though the fans were again able to vote for their favorite players, Terry and Cronin would have the final say on rounding out the roster, which carried around, uh, carried 20 players in that second year. And the AL won again in 1934. And again in 1935. And this is not really what the league wanted. The reporters and the New York Times began to criticize the NL team for having this laissez-faire approach to the game while the AL appeared to take it serious. And the NL took that point in the ass seriously and they finally beat the American League 4-3 in 1936. The two sides then took alternate wins and losses and by 1941, there was no ignoring it. These games were actually meaning something now. It is true that the All-Star game has always been a glorified exhibition game. The Major League player of 1941 as well as today had or have their own reputation at stake every time they step in the box or on the bump against the greatest ballplayers in the world. The league rivalry was firm, and it was absolute. In the 1941 All-Star Game, Ted Williams, the greatest ballplayer who ever lived, walked it off to be the National League, and you can see the jubilant American leaguers hugging Teddy ball, uh, ball game, mussing his hair up, and if you look at the field, the National Leaguers, to a man, are throwing their gloves, they're cursing that gods for the horrible turn of events. And that Williams dog, it kicked off another stretch of dominance for the American League as they won seven of the next eight contests. And some of you may know, I'm a huge Branch Ricky fan. I got a Branch Ricky show coming here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. That's going to be coming in a few weeks. I think he is not only the greatest GM who ever lived, he is one of the brightest minds ever in the game of baseball. And when he speaks, I usually shut the hell up and listen and read. 
1949 in an interview with the New York Times, he also complained that the NL didn't take the games as serious as their AL counterparts. He opined that when he worked in the AL under the presidency of Ben Johnson, uh, Johnson was always discussing new and innovative ways to surpass the NL, and he was on it like it was like this religious crusade to him. Well, the National League snapped a four-game losing streak in the 1950 All-Star Game, winning 4-3, and then again in 1951. And given the American League's dominant dominance, uh, you know, during the 30s and 40s, it did seem odd to feel the momentum turn as the influx of black ball players in the NL and propelled the senior circuit to win six of the first seven years in the 1950s. The AL edge was now diminished to a 13-10 record, and the rivalry was finally becoming, well, a rivalry. Back in 1947, the league made a decision to turn the selection of the starting lineup entirely over to the fans, adding a role that players chosen by the fans had to play at least three innings. And for a decade, there was no real problem. But, (laughs) there's always that one fucking guy that just fucks it up for everyone, right? Well, folks, enter the Cincinnati Reds as that one guy. After figuring out that the system could be exploited, the 1967 Reds fans were the first ballot stuffers in baseball history. As there were eight Reds players voted to start the Midsummer Classic that year, before uh, Commissioner Ford Frick took it upon himself to place Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Stan Musel in the starting lineup for the NL, and that drew outrage <laughs> from the Queen City ballot stuffers. And let the record show that the starting lineup combined for two hits in the 6-5 to five loss to the American League, and the next year, 1958, Com- Commissioner Fick, Frick called off fan voting, and he called it a joke. And that wasn't the only change made to the All-Star Game as a year later in 1959. Frick made the All-Star Game a two-game affair as the money was stacking up like Nolan Ryan's strikeouts from the game. There were two games a year played from 1959 to 1962. In the late 60s, pitching dominated the game as the 1968 Midsummer Classic ended in a one to nothing National League victory. In 1969, the game was postponed for the first time due to rain. The postponement uh, coincided with a precipitous drop in the television ratings when the game was finally played. Baseball Commissioner Bowie Kuhn, looking to re-spark the interest in the game, he brought back fan voting for the 1970 game. And to be fair, old-timers will point to the Ray Fossey-Pete Rose home play collision in 1970 as a time when, you know, it truly mattered. That, you know, dudes played to win. But in reality, All-Star Game competitiveness was just as much a focal point back then as it has always been in its evolutionary history. Many sports scribes claim that, you know, the All-Star Game was just a social event, and the pl- for the players, it just merely meant 
being there. That was the thing, just merely being there. And while the National League was dominating and winning at this time, Dodgers first baseman Steve Garvey said it was due to the spirit and camaraderie of the senior circuit, and that was the determining factor. However, Red Sox slugging first baseman George Scott, he had a different take. He called the voting system horseshit, saying the AL best threats are always on the bench, and he openly asked, how can you possibly win when your best artillery is sitting on the wood? Popularity, marred voting, players just having to be there, coming and going competitiveness. These problems have always plagued the All-Star game. And it was no different heading into the modern era. With the destruction of the reserve clause in 1975, baseball was now ushering in the age of free agency. Nolan Ryan signed with the Astros in 1980 for a whopping $1 million a year. Uh, Dave Winfield would sign a massive 10-year deal with the Yankees in 1981. And ironically, that would be the year players in management got into a dispute over free agent compensation. And that would have an impact on that year's All-Star game. In 1981, the strike started in June, resulted in the cancellation of two months' worth of games. When the players returned to work, the game was scheduled for August 9th. The 81 All-Star Game was the lowest-rated game since the rain makeup of 1969. And it began a disturbing trend that continues today. Ballot stuffing was still an issue. And 1989, recently retired Mike Schmidt injured Jose Kinsenko. They were voted onto the team by the fans. On the field, the American League finally got back on track with a blowout win in 1983 as well as a prolonged success into the 90s. By 2001, the AL had won 10 of the last 13 All-Star games, while the ratings continued to plummet. And there is a perceived lack of competitive spirit by some, as managers try to get as many players in the games as they can. They take a lot of grief for it. But look, you can't have it both ways. If I'm going to sit here and my team is awful, which they usually are, I want to see my one guy get a chance. And managers are doomed if they do, and they're damned if they don't. I already told you my take on interleague games, killing the notion that All-Star Games was this rare occasion to see players from both leagues on the same field. Not only has interleague destroyed the identity of the two leagues, free agency began to blur the lines between the two leagues as well. And despite enlarging rosters in 2002, Joe Torre of the American League, Bob Renly from the National League, they both ran out of pitchers and the game ended in a 7-7 tie after 11 innings, and it was only the second time that it happened in All-Star Game history. The other time being the second game of the 1961 All-Star Game. And fans had like this visceral reaction to this game, and I never understood it. It had action, it had scoring, everyone got a chance to see their guy play. It's an exhibition game. I don't know, a tie is fine in that circumstance for me. Maybe if Tory Hunter wasn't running around robbing dudes of home runs, we would have all got our W or our L. Yeah, that's the ticket. It, it, it's all Tory Hunter's fault. Blame him. So, Sealing, who always wanted to be loved by everybody, one of his weaknesses, 
listening to the fans pissing moan. He had a solution. Make the game count for something. So in May of 2003, the league and the players, they agree on a two-year experiment that would have the All-Star Game winning league. Well, they would have the home field advantage in the World Series. And it wasn't the only change. The rosters were getting expanded even more from 30 to 32. Now players had a voice in finalizing the roster in addition to the fans and the managers. And initially, the changes seemed all right. They seemed good to go. Hank Blaylock hit an eighth-inning home run off of Dodgers closer Eric Gagne. You heard that in the clip before the show. That was in 2003, but the ratings were still up. And the whole premise to hold home field advantage was gimmicky. It was better than the way it was before. When all they did was alternate uh, World Series home fields. One year it would be the National League. One year it would be the American League. One year it would be the National I mean, that was horrible. That was way worse than making the All-Star game mean something. But no one ever talks about that. No one ever remembers that. But look, granted, fair enough. It was gimmicky as fuck. And in 2016, they finally scrapped that idea. The All-Star game... Is American tradition. It's rich in legend, folklore, history. It's a never-ending story where every year we see a whole new nine-inning chapter. And every player in the game has a chance to be a hero or a goat. And not the good goat like Michael Jeffrey Jordan. But, you know, the bad one like Gagne and Lee Smith. Throughout time, every team has had their share of franchise superstars. Players that stand out above the rest. They are the ones that fill the stadiums. And only one game brings them together all at once every year. So, before I wrap up this big fat fatty, I want to hit you with a brief timeline. Some crazy facts about the All-Star Games. Uh, Hank Aaron has appeared in more All-Star Games than any other player. 25 in total. 24 times for the Braves. Once as a brewer, Willie Mays and Stan Musel, they played in 24 midseason midsummer classics. The American League currently holds a 46 to 43 to 2 edge over the senior circuit with a thin run differential of plus six. So, you know, after what? That's 89. 90, 91 games. After 91 games, that's pretty close. 46 to 43 and 2. Run differential plus 6 for the American League. The 2008 All-Star Game in Yankee Stadium was the longest one ever. A 15-inning game that took 4 hours, 50 minutes to complete. After Rangers' Michael Young hit the second game-winning all-star RBI of his career to lead the AL to an extra inning win. Don Drysdale, Lefty Gomez, uh, Robin Roberts, they've all started a record five All-Star games as a pitcher. The only player to win the World Series MVP and an All-Star MVP in the same year was Derek Jeter in 2000. Pete Rose was voted into the All-Star game at five different positions. First base, second base, third base, left field, and right field. I told you, 1983 was an AL route, 
It largely came at the expense of San Francisco Giants pitcher Atlee Hamaker, who, you know, set all kinds of horrible records. You might want to go check them out sometimes. They're fascinating. And the third inning with the bases loaded, at the 50th anniversary game in Comiskey Park, Fred Lynn gets into one, drops dong on Hamaker's lips for the first and still only Grand Slam in All-Star Game history. And that was in route to a 13-3 victory. It took 50 years for that shot to happen, and it has been 39 years since, and it hasn't happened again. The Home Run Derby Contest uh, played the day before the All-Star Game began in 1985 for the first time, and Red Slugger Dave Parker beat out future Hall of Famers Dave Winfield, Jim Rice, Eddie Murray, Carlton Fisk, and Ryan Sandberg at the Twins Metrodome in Minnesota with a whopping total of six home runs. The Guerreros, Vlad Sr. and Jr., the Bonds, Barry and Bobby, and the Griffies, Kenny and Kenny. They're the only father-son combos to drop dong in the All-Star game. The Rays, they've never hosted an All-Star game and their life, the only team in the majors not to. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. They're never going to host one in that stadium. Carl Hubble, he struck out Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, Joe Cronin in a row at the 1934 All-Star Game at the Polo, uh, Polo Grounds. All those guys wound up going into the Hall of Fame. In fact, of the 18 players who started the 1934 game, only Wally Berger of the Braves is not in the Hall of Fame. Great piece of trivia right there. In 1971, Reggie Jackson demolished. I mean, he obliterated a Doc Ellis pitch and it hit the electrical transformer that sat atop of Tiger Stadium. Scientists, mathematicians of the day, they say the ball would have carried over 534 feet if it had not been obstructed by that uh, transformer there. Yankees manager Joe McCarthy started six of his Yankees at Yankee Stadium. He let them go uh, the distance in a 3-1 victory, highlighted by a Joe DiMaggio blast in the fifth. New York City has hosted the game eight times. The Yankees four times, the Giants twice, the Mets once, and the Dodgers once. Gary Sheffield, Moises Alou, they each went to the All-Star game as a representative of five different teams. Archie Vaughn of the Pirates, 1941. Ted Williams, Red Sox, 1946. Al Rosen, the Hebrew Hammer for the Tribe, 1954. Willie McCovey, Giants, 1969. And Gary Carter, 1981 for the Expos. Those guys all homered twice in an All-Star game and no one has ever had three or more. Cleveland's Municipal Stadium and drew a record crowd of 72,086 to see the 1981 game, the largest crowd ever in All-Star Game history. And finally, the 1955 All-Star Game. It was won by the National League after a Stan Musial walk-off, and that was the same day as the uh, funeral for the game's founder and creator, Arch Ward, the same day. And there you have it, folks. Just in time for the game tonight, the history of the All-Star Game. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I 
enjoyed, you know, presenting it. You truly are. You truly are. The greatest audience a guy could ever ask for. And I love all of you. If you want to learn more about the All-Star, there are all kinds of avenues to take. Books, YouTube, all kinds of article on your Google machine setups. By all means, check it out. Do the research yourself. If you want to drop me a comment, a complaint, a line, hit me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. I love reading fan mail. I love reading hate mail. Although it's been a while since I've received any hate mail. If you want to find me on Facebook or YouTube, where I have all kinds of interviews with players and other stuff, I fly under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner on both of those. And you can always find the show Twitter page at back underscore K underscore podcast. Next week, I'm delighted to say I will be joined at the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex with my good friend Michael Franks out of Altoona, Pennsylvania. He's a big pirate freak. And I get to relive my worst nightmare and one of his greatest joyous moments as we will be talking about the We Are Family 1979 World Champion Pittsburgh Pirates. Oy vey. That just sounds like a dreadful topic. But at least one of my favorite people on the planet will be in the studio to present it with me here on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the deck. <laughs>